Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience, because one of these X-Men will not. Well, kind of. He actually turns out fine later that issue. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We are here to discuss the first ever New Mutants Uncanny X-Men crossover. And I couldn't be more excited. One of the best things about this is this changes how the X-Men work. We are going to enter an age where the X-Men functions in two titles. Uncanny tends to introduce a story, and New Mutants follows it up with some supporting elements somehow. There are the rare cases where the story begins in New Mutants and finds its way over to Uncanny. Such is going to be the case with one of the New Mutants' most larger-than-life villains. But before we can get there, today we're going to be talking about New Mutants 1-3 through by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud, as well as Uncanny X-Men 167 to 168 by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Guys, I'm so excited to have you on. And it's, there's just so many mutants. We need this many people, right? So, Jonah, we've read the X-Men out in space having an adventure, at the end of which Wolverine realized that Cl- <laughs> that Claremont must have a brood in him. Okay, <laughs> yup, Wolverine realized that Claremont has a brood in him <laughs> and has to warn Paul Smith. <laughs> So Wolverine realized that Xavier has a brood queen in him. Oh, that old queen. And meanwhile, on Earth, Moira has just, I don't know, dead baby bullied Xavier into forming the new mutes. Going into this arc, were you worried about Mr. Claremont and his brood baby? Yes, because knowing Charles, I feel like his pregnancies would be very hard, and my expectations for these issues were really very much, okay, Chris, I see what you're trying to do. How are you going to take me there? And I think that question of how are you going to get there is really the most exciting adventure that New Mutants 1 through 3 has to offer. There are certain elements that are foregone conclusions. We know that the X-Men are eventually going to return to Earth, even if there is a group of new kids. But one of the things that the Age of Comics in the 1980s benefited from was a lack of digital awareness. There was no, oh, I'm going to go on Wikipedia and see what happened 20 years ago. There was no, oh, I'm going to go online and see if there's any spoilers or any solicits. It was a much more honest process, and you could truly believe the New Mutants were here to replace the X-Men, down to the fact that their name was the New Mutants. Their name had nothing to do with X-Men. It was about the brand of mutants. Dylan, you're not entering our show for the first time per se, but this is your first time on the main show as a regular host covering X-Men. Now, you're kind of representing the fan that might have been brought in by that New Mutants graphic novel. You praised the art and felt that the story would be enough to bring in new readers. 
How did it feel sliding into Gray Malkin Lane as a new reader, sort of, kind of, almost not really? Reading New Mutants again from its beginning is... It, it's great because I know where these characters end up and where they are right now in comics. And just going back and reading their origins, it's really kind of neat because I myself can clearly see what Claremont is doing with, say, Danny Moonstar. She seems like a female version of Cyclops and characters like Shance, and she's older than the four other New Mutants. She seems to me, and it might be kind of out of the box, but she kind of seems like a female version of Magneto since she has such a tortured past and she doesn't necessarily always agree with or feel the same way about certain things like the other four New Mutants do. I love that comparison of Shan to Magneto. Jonah, did you see any of those parallels between Shan having grown up in war-torn Vietnam and Magneto having grown up in a concentration camp? I think Dylan's parallel between the two characters is pretty interesting, and I think I would have to completely agree with him that these are two characters experiencing such severe trauma and probably very much very well suffer from PTSD. So having Shan take the righteous path of wanting to do good and be a hero as opposed to Magneto, who right now has more nefarious plans, if I will if I can use that word, though, it's nice. It's I think it's a good way, another way to show foils of characters. Magneto's already a foil of Charles, but having a character like Shan go through a very similar upbringing be a foil and how she can still be a good character is really nice. I love that you said PTSD. I mean, I don't love that you said PTSD. I don't think anybody sits there going, like, I've got a PTSD. I mean, I guess someone must have a PTSD fetish, but that's not me right now. Oh, God, what have I awoken? So, I love that you brought up PTSD because this book starts the ground running at dealing with the trauma and damage that these characters have from the get-go. If I do have one major complaint, it is that death is a motivating factor for a number of these kids. But the reason death is a motivating factor for a number of these kids, honest to goodness, seems a little bit to get their families out of the way. One of the big things is Kitty's parents might call her back, so Xavier puts a psychic whammy on them. And we don't want to read that over and over again. We don't want to see Hermione constantly make her parents forget they have a daughter. So instead, Karma's parents are dead. She cares about her siblings, but her parents are dead. Birdo's mother and father are rich and out of the picture. He's just at some boarding school. Sam's father recently passed away, and so his mother is busy enough trying to feed the 80 other birds that they raise in their little nest. She doesn't have time to worry about her son. Danny's parents are gone. Rain didn't know her parents. And you know what? Come to think of it, they're all still marred by death some other way as well. Danny's parents aren't just dead. Danny's grandfather just died. Birdo just lost his girlfriend. It's just so over the top in a lot of ways. And beyond that, they're each broken by some sort of fight, some sort of war. Whether it's Danny and Birdo both knowing ethnic persecution, or it's Rain, who has been a victim of a twisted religious right. Sam, who was manipulated into doing evil against his, I don't know, like mutant race kind of, you know, and there's poor Shan, who's had to use her powers to defend herself multiple times. And kill so her brother. So I guess that's why, well, yeah. So I guess that's why when the scene, so <laughs> the book opens on what I refer to as 
Shan stop being so foreign already? <laughs> and I feel strange about this opening scene top to bottom. Just to kind of hit a couple of things, they're giving Shan a more American modern haircut. Birdo's flirting with Rain, but Stevie's like, oh, that might be a bad idea because Rain is simple. <laughs> so Danny's powers accidentally interact with Shan's memories. So as my note says, Shan, stop killing Danny. Shan, stop possessing Stevie. Birdo, stop slapping Shan. And I feel like these shouldn't have to be the things I say. Jonah, I promised you this was good. <laughs> I promised you. <laughs> well, I don't think you broke your promise, but I don't know how how good of a what start the it is. Of this promise we're starting off on. Yeah, Dylan, was this something you remembered being as hysterically problematic as it is? No. When I went back to read this, I was like, oh, and this is the first page of the first issue. This is this is all kinds of awful. I really, I think you know, there's just so many gems. It's hard to pick the one that I love the most. It's like it's like Steven Universe characters, but I was probably the most shocked by Shen just like, I'm gonna kill you! And like, I just had no clue what was happening! And so then Shen possesses Stevie! And Danny, so Danny has this, like, really complicated relationship with running away. She does it a lot. It's why she's so fit. She's so busy running away from her problems. <laughs> I like that. She's so fit because she's running away from her problems. That, uh, uh, okay, can we also talk about when Rain was like, my hair will always be ugly. <laughs> like, what just happened? Do you know what that was? That was in Mean Girls when they're all in the mirror saying bad things about themselves because that's what girls do. And then Katie says, sometimes in the morning my breath smells gross. That's exactly what Rain just did. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in so many ways, it felt very much to me like we said some really lovely things about Chris Claremont's handling of women in comics. And I do believe this might be one of the follies he runs into time and time again. He very frequently falls into, but all young women want to look like a princess. And I know he doesn't mean to. I feel like the reason it seems a little bit different compared to Chris's other writings is maybe the fact that he's trying to actually think or get into the mindset of even younger. Like, yes, the other X-Men are still young, but I mean, these five are supposed to be written as like super young. So maybe that's why it seems a little bit different. Okay, yeah, because, you know, I do think a lot of the stakes in New Mutants do seem a bit lower right away. It's not that I find the first issue unfulfilling, but when you read through the first issue, truly, the actual bad guy, per se, of the first issue seems to be, frankly, Danny Moonstar. Danny is one of my all-time favorite characters, but it is constantly Danny running away and... I don't know, being afraid of technology that seems to cause problems. Danny really is the crux of the difficulty in the first issue. Sure, there's the creepy government guys spying on kids from a van. <laughs> That's there. And we will get into Gabby makes me want to holler and her enormous reveal in a moment. And the obsession with Ileana, I just don't understand. So, for, you know, I just, the bad guy was Danny. Okay, but can we take two seconds to comment on that everyone's comments about Ileana is that she's weird? 
it is starting to get hateful. Like, everybody is starting to be like, and she's not even weird yet, is the thing. <laughs> she's not. She's like. She's just this kid. She hasn't done this anything. This is the most normal she ever is. Okay, right? well, no one uh, even knows that her favorite thing is playing with bones. Okay, but to be fair, she was a little weird, but the only person she was weird to was Charles. Everyone else, she's come off as fairly normal, so I don't know where everyone gets off calling Ileana weird when she has zero page time. I agree. And, you know, again, it's unbelievable how much Moira is factoring into the grand legacy of X-Men and Mutancy. There's something really amazing about everything we talked about in the recently concluded Dawn of X powerhouse feed that ran on Thursdays throughout the summer and fall, chronicling John Hickman's amazing House of X, which restarted the X-Men franchise in a major way. There were some developments with Moira's character there that the more we go back, the more I'm confronted with the ways in which it does work, and I'm very excited about it. Okay, we brought her up. Let's talk about it. Gabrielle Holler was introduced in Uncanny 161. Here we are, roughly Uncanny 165-ish, and she's already important again. Oh, and she has a baby. Oh, and it's gonna give some really complicated feelings to Moira about babies, and it plays right back into her bringing up her son just several issues earlier at the end of the day claremont is always knitting together this complicated web jonah this is your first time reading through all of this the way each one of these fibers comes together to create this quilt of the x-men it's got to be at least a little bit overwhelming it is it's oh we're already dealing with such heavy topics in the regular uncanny run where it's really literally right now during this time when this was written a fight for survival so there's already a lot of heavy topics going on over there but here we're introduced to i throw this word around a lot on the podcast but more slice of life things you know moira confronting babies and how her mutant baby turned out to be completely evil and hateful and almost killed everyone And now that there's this mutant baby, and then she has to talk with Mr. Sean Cassidy, who we haven't seen in many a time and many issues about babies. And he's like, Moira, we're going to have a good baby. And she said, I, I like fucking you, but no. She doesn't really give that good of a reason. At least, well, actually, I take that back. I rescind that. She gives a great reason. (laughs) Okay. Her reason is my last baby killed a bunch of people. I don't want to make another murder baby. But Banshee, I feel like Banshee's point was right that uh, Proteus was made out of hate lock and this would be made out of love lock. But that being said, there's the action within these issues of uh, the first few issues of New Mutants is more contained about what are these characters going to be have to be confronting. You say what they're going to have to confront, both physical, literally, and kind of ephemerally. We see them confront their greatest fears over and over again in sort of an overuse of Danny's powers, but. We do also get the confrontation of Sentinels, Project Wide Awake, run by Henry Gyrick, Sebastian Shaw's plan that I'm pretty sure this whole Shaw-Gyrick thing started just around Days of Future Past. So we're looking at a really long game on the Sebastian Shaw front. There's so many things overlapping. And I know, Dylan, a million years ago, one of your first episodes, actually, you said you're actually a Sentinel. Yes. Right? 
So what did you think of these adorable Blue Ranger Sentinels? <laughs> Blue Ranger. <laughs> I love when they have the different Sentinels like this. I, I don't know if it's just the colorist taking their own personal touch and making them look a little bit different or whatnot. But to me, when I read it and see Sentinels that look similar but have a different color, it's my, in my head, I read it as these are people using these basically weapons of mass destruction, uh, but putting their own touch on it to making them be their own, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like a fashion ball. Yeah. Exactly that. So, Jonah, how do you feel about how do you feel about the fashion bombs? Um, I think they sissied that walk, and they really shorted their stuff down mm. the runway. But I don't think they're going to be staying because they're just too combative with the judges. <laughs> we can talk about it over brunch. But in terms of a bunch of kids fighting a bunch of robots, I've always felt that the Sentinels are kind of like historically under, not maybe not even underutilized, but I feel frequently like people don't value the strength of killer robots in a lot of ways. And I think the Sentinels are kind of a great training program. We see the New Mutants take on the Danger Room, so it's sort of a natural extension that they would take on the Sentinels, kind of like an outdoor Danger Room with no off switch. What I've noticed about the Sentinels, and that you two can confirm because you've read a lot more than me, is at least for right now, it seems like Sentinels are more of a spoken evil as opposed to an actual evil. It's very heavily implied that the Sentinels are dangerous, they're adaptive, they're really these mutant hunting killer machines, but we've not seen them very often and... I understand. It may it would make sense plot-wise, because during the time that this was written in the Uncanny X-verse, there's not a lot of Sentinel technology yet, so there's not that many people creating Sentinels. But still, I think this was a good way to show them how the real-life dangers that they're going to be facing as ex-students. And it also just makes sense that they're able to win, because they don't have any data on them. I think it's a little bit that Sentinels were a bigger thing in the 1960s. The classic X-Men faced them more frequently. I think because there was more fear of technology and emerging technology in the 60s. And from everything I've ever read, most people found that the Sentinels under Chris Claremont were kind of, uh, like, wimpy and not really scary. So, for the most part, the artists didn't want to do Sentinels with Claremont. That's actually part of where the idea for Days of Future Past came from for John Byrne. He wanted to make Sentinels scary. I agree with you saying that I'm trying to make them scary. I think it's interesting, like Jonah said, in in the New Mutants books, to have the Sentinels show up because... To me, it's kind of like the bad guys are testing the Sentinels on how they would do with attacking newer mutants that they know nothing about. So the Sentinels have been used over and over again to test against consistent foes, the known X-Men. But this is an opportunity for Project Wide Awake to get the ball running on adaptive Sentinels. That's a really interesting read. Now, Sentinels aren't the only villains that the New Mutants come up against in this arc. Of course, it would not have been Marvel Comics in 1982 in a book with mutants, if you, well, I guess except for the Champions and Dazzler and... Okay, so I guess just these two books then had a whole lot of brood going on, and goddamn, the brood even found their way... If you didn't like the 
the brood, this was a bad time to read comics because he is throwing them around. Oh my god, it is out of control. It's like a seven-year-old with birthday money. Have you seen my brood? Have you seen my brood? It is out of control. So the brood is in Xavier, and I think the best trick is that the brood is using Xavier's psychic abilities to manifest physical Xavier's all over the place and physical broods all over the place, but Xavier is sitting in his office the whole time. I also really loved Karma possessing them to get the meeting together, if for no other reason. That Sam shaving thing growing up really did it for me. And I feel like he's going to be the one that they make the beefcake. You know, that's not a bad read. Sam will find himself in a very mature relationship with a whore. And I was <laughs> <laughs> just like, is that her, I was is so that her jealous name? Hua? <laughs> As a kid, I was illogically jealous of Sam having a girlfriend. I was like, no! And like, he's no! Sam's like, girlfriend. I, no, I wanted Sam to be my girlfriend. But at the end of the day, he was a fictional character, and I was still a human being at that point. So, back to now, and not terribly in the future. The Brood begins terrorizing the New Mutes in a way that I only find disappointing because it feels like another level of danger room. Because everything the Brood is doing seems to be a combination of Xavier and Danny Moonstar's powers and, well, use of the danger room, it feels frequently like nothing really happened in these three issues. Sure, they fought the Sentinels, but they got away. Sure, they came together and had a fight, but the kids just fought each other. Ultimately, the bad guy in the third issue is Xavier, and he's not even an unlimitedly open, tapped, ready-to-attack Xavier. He's a very using someone else, Xavier. I don't know. Jonah, did you feel that Xavier was, like, a cunning mastermind here? Because I feel like this was a dumbing down on the brood. Maybe this is the problem with having two books. You're getting lost in translation of someone only reading New Mutants versus someone only reading the Uncanny run. And I feel like there would be at least a portion of people only reading the Uncanny as opposed to, you know, reading new characters that they might not want to care about. And it it felt like they were spreading a little bit too much information that didn't make sense individually. It might seem a little bit confusing to people if they're not reading both. And this brood seems very dumbed down. Like, it, for the most part, the brood that we've already read so far seemed a little smarter than this. And if they weren't smarter, they seemed a little bit more all just attack and kill right now type of thing. Yeah, they were either cunning or aggressive. Less, let me foolishly play with my food. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. This one is playing with its food as if it's waiting for something better to happen. And yeah, like, what are you waiting for? Just take them out. It's that waiting, that game playing, that cat and mouse adventure that the brood decides to have with the new mutes that ultimately leads to its downfall. By the time the brood is ready to truly spring its trap and it has completely taken over Xavier, the Uncanny X-Men return in Uncanny X-Men 167. As soon as they arrive, they seem to start kicking the new mutants' asses, like, right the fuck away. Like, nobody even takes a second. They even are like, oh, nope, these are kids. Oh, wait, nope, Xavier's, Xavier's raising them. All right, not sure why they don't recognize us. Keep beating them up. <laughs> this was, like, a lot. In that regard, I did think it was kind of cool to watch the X-Men take the New Mutants out in, like, ten seconds. I know they're adults, right? Like, I, I I get that. I really do. So I'm not like, beat up the kids! But, like... The first instance in Main Uncanny Run, as opposed to being in a classic, where Wolverine shows resistance to psychics. Oh, yeah. He fights back against Karma, and Karma's like, what? No. 
I can possess anyone! And, nah, nah, you can't. Can't possess Wolverine, which is a nice connection to what we know he's going to be. I think, though, that the moment you see Xavier actually transform into the brood, you realize how for keeps this is meant to be. He actually, like, does the body flip emerge from the, you know, I'm now a scary monster face. And that's really overwhelming. I remember reading this for the first time, being like, no way, Xavier's fine. Oh no, he really did transform into a brood. It was exciting to see Xavier on the attack, but at the same time, I find it rendered completely moot by the end of the issue. I am disappointed that the Shi'ar immediately build Xavier a new body. It's cute that the X-Men immediately start caring for the mutants and take them into space and are, you know, just start older-brothering them. I think that's tremendous, but I really do find myself terribly disappointed that the cost of Xavier, this greatest mutant mind, the reason they had to rush home, not only is it immediately undone, but he gets his legs back. That really felt like an unreasonable trade-off for the amount of anticipation that was built across something like 10 or 11 issues. And can we talk about that weird moment where it's like Lalandra and Moira are just flaunting themselves all over Xavier? Yeah, we keep talking about how way too many women are, like, super into Xavier and his damage. I'm not sure I get what's going on there. It's not very attractive. Jonah, you've had so many fake deaths, and you've had a couple of real deaths, too, but we've spent what seems like the better part of a year of X-Men storytelling. Focusing on this Brood saga, the whole thing began in 154, where the Brood plan first found its way to Earth in the form of the Sidri and Corsair and the entire Deathbird saga. We then saw that run through 157. We had a brief return to Earth, and in that time, Xavier being unconscious was a huge element of the story. We immediately returned to space, and Xavier found himself pulling together a new team, not realizing it was under the influence of the Brute. That's a lot, a lot of storytelling to ultimately be reduced to, no, he's fine. How does that play out in retrospect, knowing that I'm saying we just read 200 pages? I don't want to say it's a letdown, but this is kind of a letdown. It feels like it just wraps up too quickly. I wish there was more talking about Charles' struggle with his humanity and his mind and his body. I wish there was more about, you know, is he able to really control himself around the children, or is he kind of teaching them subtle, evil ways? I wish there was more of that, but it's all wrapped up very fast, and this isn't the first time that the Star Jammers medic has had to heal one of the X-Men, and it's been will they or will they won't they and it's just i don't know it it feels cliche i wasn't on the issues of uncanny with you with the brood but not that i would want claremont to throw even more brood at us but i feel like this one issue could have been stretched out at least to two or three just all of a sudden the x-men are back and stop xavier and then put him in a new body and then by the end of the issue everything's fine I I feel like it could have at least been two or three issues. And I genuinely feel it kind of required it. The potential of Xavier Brood is lorded over us in numerous issues, whether it's the initial seeds of it in 161, or it's the full realization uh, that the New Mutants are in danger in New Mutants 3. We spent so much time building toward this climax for it to ultimately sort of devolve into... What is not a silly problem, because I'll be honest, 167 and 168 are both great issues, 
and I love 168, but there is something about the over-the-top menace of 161 through 166. Every issue ended with life or death. And even the issues of New Mutants managed to end with some sort of life or death scenario at times. And the end of 167 is Kitty Pride has to go back to finishing school. And it just doesn't feel like it has the same punch. That said, goddammit, do I love Professor Xavier as a jerk. Oh my god. Oh my god, my kitty. My kitty Catherine Pride, even with more youngsters who are vying for her role as the new young X-Men on the block, she still manages to hold the attention and be the protagonist. I agree. She really does stay the protagonist somehow, and that is quite an accomplishment. She is running up against so many straight white men right now. She is up against Colossus, Wolverine. She's vying for page time against Cyclops and Xavier. And she's 14. She's too young to be sexualized like Storm can be. And there is this incredible sense of how does she do it that I think is what makes Kitty Pride Kitty Pride. This issue also sees a lot of very, I guess, personal struggles throughout the issue. Whether it's Ileana being a really unsupportive friend, or it's finally getting to see Amanda show back up, there was a lot of very Earth-driven narrative, and I guess that's because this was the first time the X-Men were truly just hanging out on Earth. Dylan, this was your first real uncanny issue that had, like, you know, anyone but the X-Men on a spaceship. Was it fun jumping back into this era of X-Men where you are just surrounded by a goddamn community center of mutant lovers? (laughs) These issues, like you said, being so earthy, and I know where the X-Men were previously to these two issues, even though I did just say that I was angry that they didn't flesh out more of the Xavier Brood story. This next issue was really great to see all the different, or most of them at least, like Kurt going to see Amanda and... Scott with that Lee chick. Storm starting to have some time to herself. It was just really nice to see all the X-Men getting back connected to Earth, if that makes sense. It really does. The X-Men are such a grounded family. As much as we've said there's nothing left for them on Earth, Claremont managed to remind us a number of the things we would miss if we never came back. Jonah, obviously. I mean, it literally is you. That picture of Nightcrawler laying out on the couch, surprising Amanda with the Banff doll sitting on his lap. Can we talk about that and how that is probably one of the most explicit things Kurt has ever said? Being, I know you love to hold this bamf at night, but how about the real thing? What? And then she says, yum! Yum! She says, yum! The yum part. You two are still gross for doing it. I, it's so overwhelming, but gotta love it. <laughs> but I need there a There was bamf. a number... I really wish they would mass-produce a lovely Banff. One of the things the X-Men found time to do this issue was give us a number of advancing relationships, whether it was seeing Logan honestly confide in his friend Kurt that he doesn't always agree with Xavier and his methodology and that Kitty deserves credit based on what she's accomplished, or it's Xavier and Lelandra bring Schmoopy. I'm actually getting really tired of that story. It's really kind of boring. We see Stevie and Kitty get closer, which is really nice. And fine, I'll bring it up. The mistreatment of Lee, not cool. And f- 
fuck. The introduction of Maddie. Oh, some of us actually like It's Maddie. just that at this point, I love Maddie. <laughs> uh, at this point, all I want to say is that Maddie is not who she is going to ultimately become. At this point, the goal was just to create a girlfriend for Cyclops. We just we just totally. had Lee in this. <laughs> Lee I know, was like, I know. Lee was like, Scott, I'm so different now. Everything's changed. My hair got longer. I know my hair. It's so long now. <laughs> the ex. I will. I'll be honest. I don't hate Maddie Pryor. I really, really, really don't. But this is a very confused time for the storytelling, and Maddie is one of the least clear elements for some time now. Outside of that. This story, I guess, really comes down to Kitty Pride as the main character in a really cool way. Whether it's giving us more details about her relationship with Pete, which I love that she doesn't let her relationship with Pete define her. Every time he comes around, she doesn't just jump too. That's actually pretty cool. And we get a follow-up on the Sidri Hunters from 153, as well as finally getting Lockheed. This was a really major turning point for the X-Men, and for all of the, I guess, lack of action I bemoan, there was even huge interlocking elements like the Storm mystery we get for one page. And I'm sorry, if anybody doesn't love Paul Smith, I don't know how to help them. I love this art. I just think these pages look great. I do think, though, you know, Jonah, you made a comment that you didn't love his Colossus. And I was like, no, his Pete is so cute and handsome. You know what? His Pete is really handsome, but his Colossus kind of looks like the Michelin. (laughs) His Colossus looks like a giant marshmallow man from Ghostbusters. Yeah, his Colossus kind of looks like a pillow mascot for a mattress (laughs) company. And I guess I'd never really thought about it till now. But yeah, while I do love his Pete and just about his everyone else... His Colossus is a little chunky. Yeah, it's like it's like he didn't know if he was supposed to draw like a man or a robot, and he was like, well, I'll just use this and it will work. Yeah, it's very Danger Will Robinson, Iron Man split the difference. 100%. Now, of course, by the end of the issue, Kitty has proven herself able to save the day with a little bit of help, but frankly, she's Kitty Bride and she could have done it on her own. Xavier re-promotes her to the X-Men, But she does spend several weeks on the New Mutants. This is a transformative point for Kitty. It is in a lot of ways like this puts her rivalry with the New Mutants to bed. She does still consider them ex-babies, but she considers them ex- No, that's really what she calls them. She calls them the ex-babies. Okay, Kitty. Pot, meat, kettle. Right? No, yeah. that Everything in there is just everything's made of onyx. So... It's really intense. But this is a really important turning point. I also love that Ileana keeps popping up. And is she a mutant? Isn't she a mutant? Oh, I met her. They're, like, making it really clear that Ileana is probably going to wind up in this book. And they're not even doing a very sly job of it. Well, they he, Chris did give us a little niblet of Ileana saying that she killed the X-Men. <laughs> Let's let's just let's not have Chris and Ileana and Niblet in the same sentence ever again. <laughs> I can't make any promises. <laughs> oh gosh. I feel like this really is a different X-Men. It's a different time. These are new adventures for new characters. Even the characters we've come to recognize time and time again as reliable for whatever reason. I'm starting to see new sides to them. We see Storm, changed by her experiences in space, eager to learn more, eager to not be alone. We see Logan, willing to be himself more, but exist within the rules of Xavier's school. 
everybody is evolving and advancing into who they're going to be. And New Mutants is a great time to see that begin. Like we said earlier, the New Mutants is going to spend a lot of its energy supporting the main titles. Issue 4 highlights themes that are set up in works like God Loves, Man Kills. Issues 5 and 6 tie directly in with the events of the Wolverine miniseries, as well as the climactic events of issue 175. From there, the New Mutants have their own story, but it does introduce a recurring character that will join the pages of X-Men. The title spends so much of its effort supporting the uncanny X-Men, it really does function like two series that are one. Jonah, this was your first time reading two books in the X-Men franchise that are meant to represent the rich tapestry of the mutant world that Claremont is trying to design, and this time he's not shoving it over in the pages of Power Man and Iron Fist because he's writing that right now, and he's not pushing it into a Marvel team-up or having it appear over in the pages of Marvel fanfare. Do you feel, at this point, that the X-Men is climaxing into that rich franchise that we'd been expecting for so long with all of these appearances? Yes, absolutely. How do you start a franchise? You open up new locations, and that's exactly what Chris is doing with the new book. You have more characters, you know. If mutancy is supposed to be genetic, and anyone you look at passing the street could actually be a mutant, I think it's really important to have more mutants and have them appear more frequently. I completely agree with Jonah mentioning the new locations, metaphorically speaking, having this younger generation, especially like he kind of introduced with Kitty and or Ileana, even though we don't know about her having powers or not yet. Like I was mentioning earlier, I think with New Mutants, Chris is writing a little bit different than he did with X-Men because he really wants to show that these are actually kids who, like you mentioned, Nico, that were brought together in a lot of really, for a lot of really awful reasons. Like the other X-Men, Gene, Iceman, Angel, Beast, and Scott, they weren't necessarily brought together because of horrible situations. They just showed up because they had powers. With these kids, I feel like we get to see more of them dealing with the fact that now they are junior X-Men and they have powers that they don't understand. But on top of that, they are still teenagers and we're going to be seeing, seeing tons more of the Salem Center and that's like where kids hang out. It's going to be a fun journey and it's nice to see a book that talks about a different generation. Oh, I love all of those points. Whether it's here on Access for Podcast or over on HTML, Kevo and I and our team spend an awful lot of time talking about the live and animated adaptations of Marvel's superheroes. Ten years ago, when Disney purchased Marvel, it changed the game. No longer was DC the only company backed by a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, but now Marvel would be able to compete on the same level. For years, fans wondered what that would mean for so much of Marvel's rich content that has spanned dozens of companies dozens of production houses, and decades. With the advent of Disney+, Plus, Marvel is going to have an awesome opportunity, not just to create new material, like with the incredible slate of Disney+, Plus Marvel Originals, but we're going to get to see some long-lost material finally resurface. Opening day releases include Agent Carter, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Ant-Man animated shorts, Avengers Assemble, 
Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes, The Avengers Secret War Shorts, Avengers United They Stand, both Big Hero 6 and its shorts, Fantastic Four, Fantastic Four The World's Greatest Heroes, Gargoyles, for those of you with excellent taste, as well as DuckTales, if you happen to be a Disney Afternoon kind of guy, Guardians of the Galaxy, both the 2015 animated series and its matching shorts, The Incredible Hulk animated series, The Inhumans, both Form of Iron Man, the 1994 and the Armored Adventures, Marvel Rising Initiation, Marvel's Rocket and Groot, the Spider-Man shorts, Marvel Superhero Adventures, Marvel Ultimate Comics, Silver Surfer's animated series, the Spider-Man animated slate, which is the 81, the 94, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and Spider-Man Unlimited, as well as Spider-Woman from 1979, Ultimate Spider-Man, Wolverine and the X-Men, X-Men, the standard 1992 Fox Fair, and X-Men Evolution round out the list of Marvel-inspired or adapting shows that are going to be there launch day. And that's not to say there won't be more shows shortly thereafter. It's also important to note that things like Tron Uprising, Star Wars Blips, Star Wars Forces of Destiny, Rebels, The Rebel Shorts, Resistance, and Clone Wars are all also going to make it on for opening day. Disney Plus is going to represent like a nerdgasm repository of availability. Whether or not we feel that some of this material has stood the test of time, for example, almost all of the animated projects we discussed in the HTML for Dark Phoenix were a bit on the rougher side, but it's certainly going to put them under further scrutiny. Something Kevo and I had noted was that our aggressive criticism of the X-Men animated series was frequently met with people telling us that we didn't appreciate nostalgia, or it's a classic. That said, the animation errors are going to shine through on Disney Plus's high-quality stream, and the thinness of the writing and the repetitiveness of the storytelling and dialogue is going to be made evident by watching it all at once. For better or for worse, each piece of media they create becomes our history. And that's why people are so up in arms about Sony reappropriating Spider-Man back into its own universe. Spider-Man is now part of the Avengers franchise. No matter what, that happens. So to remove him isn't just as simple as no longer making films with him. We'll always have that to look back on. It's so important that things like Comixology Unlimited and Disney Plus and Netflix, and they all not just be looked at as streaming services, but they're a chance to preserve media history. They function as accessible libraries. One of the earlier statistics in the battle for the emergence of streaming media was for all of the movies Netflix might have, less than 2% of its films were from before 1950 or 1960, and absolutely, that makes sense. They were looking to be competitive with a young market, but we can't be competitive with a young market to the loss of history. And I feel like, again, for better or for worse, Disney Plus is going to offer us that chance to re-examine the ways we chose to tell our fiction and the narratives we locked into our media. It's going to be a wild ride. I can't wait to get to the Massachusetts Academy and talk a little bit about, honestly, the New Mutants' most major antagonists in the form of the Hellions, and just how those lines will blur over time, and it's been so great to have you guys here to explore these themes and these ideas in what is absolutely a coming-of-age turning point for the X-Men. 
Dylan, until we find ourselves back here at Grand Elkin Lane, where can everybody find you online? Everyone can find me at my Facebook group that is called House of X. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Where can everyone find you, Jonah? You can't find me in a Danger Room experience so real that you have to question everything around you. You can actually find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me here on this amazing network. I'm so lucky that I get to make all of these incredible shows for Joey. They're actually just for Joey. No one else listens. So uh, at least that's what I keep being told as he keeps me chained up in this dungeon reading comics and watching movies. Please, someone send help. That's awkward because I... You could also find me on... Uh, Oh my god! There's been someone here all along! So... Oh my god. I'm not going to cut any of it. So you guys can find me all over this amazing network making shows like Now and Again, which are my childhood adventures podcasts. Where we take a look at pop music through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can also find me on HTML, has been talking more or less, with Kevo, where we're currently dissecting the Alien franchise, soon to turn our attention to Star Wars. We're just spanning that galaxy. We've already covered the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Fox versus Look Out for those as well. Don't forget to check out the other incredible feeds of Uncanny X's for podcasts. Whether you're looking for the 1970s X-Men turning point giant size X-Men, you're looking to know about the mutant titles in that time, or you want to know more about The Dawn of X, Jonathan Hickman's groundbreaking, already legendary run on X-Men through the pages of House of X and Powers of Ten. We have something for everybody, so please check out those archives. You can also find me on Instagram, not wearing any clothing, at NicoActions, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, can't wait to come back here and talk about more mutants, and until then, we'll see ya. Bye. See ya.